Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome. My name is Michael Johnston and this is another episode of New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. Today I have Dr. Eric Gola uh, as who is a climate and environmental justice researcher for Greenpeace. And today we will be t- speaking about his new book, Mining the Heartland Nature, Place, and Populism on the Iron Range, that was released by New York Press just earlier this year in um, June. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Kula. Uh, thank you for having me here, and I'm really excited for the conversation. Excellent. So to start off with this uh, book, Mining in the Heartland, how did you uh, become interested in this topic and start exploring it for this book? Yeah, so I've had a long interest in the conflicts between economic development and environmental conservation, and maybe the perception that those are in conflict. And so at the time, um, I was in graduate school at University of Minnesota, and I saw this emerging conflict happening um, in the northern part of the state. And I thought it was really interesting because it was both really unique yet emblematic of a lot of the struggles we see in the U.S. and all over the world. Uh, between extractive development, between conservation, um, and some of the challenges that you know rural extractive regions face. Um, but I also saw northern Minnesota as being this really kind of unique and special and interesting place. Um, unlike other parts of the U.S., like West Virginia and even Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota still, at the time, had a strong uh, democratic lean in the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, as it's called in Minnesota, was still strong in this part of the region. Um, people had this really str- had this really strong European immigrant um, identity, um, and there's still kind of this quirky alternative culture you can find in the in the North Woods, as they say in Minnesota. Like some of the towns have co-op grocery stores. There's old Finnish um, co-op parks that had been founded, you know, at the early 1900s by you know, Finnish communists. And so you had all this going on at the same time as you had kind of the ascendant kind of right-wing populism with Trump. Um, And I thought there's just all these issues at play. But, um, and and then stepping back, I also saw that, you know, 
we hear a lot about mining in the national politics in a way that um, maybe um, it's kind of outsized for the size of mining um, in the national economy. And so it's kind of interested in, you know, why is that? And what's kind of the cultural and social meaning of miners, uh, mining places? And, and how does that overlap and play into things like nationalism and populism and our collective memories? Yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of a cultural dual, dualism in some sort, you know, helping and hurt, helping versus hurting the econ, uh, hurting the land. As either way, it's it's control and stewardship of the land and overseeing it as a as an object. It's um, seeing the uh, well, it's a hierarchy, a, a power, uh, a, a way of power, right, of, of of enforcing such power over the land in order to help it and then say comparing oneself and what one is doing to others who are perceived as, as hurting uh, i see this sort of a dualism coming out in your in your book certainly you see these kind of competing claims to speak for the land or to speak for the place um, which all kind of presume that right the non-human world is some object outside um, and also these competing claims also tends to silence and overlook the the histories and legacies and ongoing forms of settler colonialism and right uh, claims of of being having the right to speak for this land uh, that is you know indigenous territory that is still used and occupied um, enjoyed and getting meaning to people who've been here much longer than these competing groups of settlers that I was looking at yeah and there is sort of a difference between conservation and preservation right did you see that much at all in, in your research yeah. Um, and so there's some groups um, who are particularly involved with some of these mines who are really concerned about protecting wilderness areas. Um, and then other groups who um, really wanted to make sure that you could maybe have both some mining and some uh, uh, preservation of the land. But also that, um, you know, part of my interest in this uh, topic was that there's a long history of conservation in, in the U.S. And, and globally being Part of a settler colonial project too and that you know a lot of dispossession and displacement has happened through creating things like the national park so you know um not to critique per se the idea that we have places that are off uh, uh are forbidden from industrial development but to understand some of the complexities and and what that means to different groups of people based on the, those often complex um histories yeah and there is some and even those who are mining, there's significance in it for the people who do it. Um, what is the significance that you saw in, in mining for people who live in this iron range? Yeah, so for some folks on the iron range, especially those who you know live there for a few generations, uh, mining is really uh, embedded in the sort of place-based economic identity. It's part of um, the collective memories. And it's also, I think I found part of people's future imaginaries of the place. And so I think for some of the folks I talked to and some of the groups that are kind of active in promoting mining or involved in um, politics, like mining is part of what they are, right? I heard a lot of people in my interviews saying, you know, mining is what made us, right? Mining is who we are. It's part of what this place is. And for them, you know, a threat to mining development, they interpreted um, sometimes it's kind of a, a threat to their way of life and to their sense of place. So it was, yes, it was about jobs, but it was about a lot more than that. And I think that's actually why it was so much of a conflict is it was seen as, you know, this is part of our 
tradition, our history, and our ability to continue the way we are. And what was your experience as you as you started to dive into this research? How did you and how did you feel as part of the collective? I know ethnography is a very difficult thing to do, particularly when you are uh, a stranger in foreign lands. So, uh, how did what was your experience like in this field? Yeah, so I at times found it um, hard and challenging because um, I had some own personal connections to the place, um, but I also have my own kind of competing views around. Um, you know, I, I'm consider myself a concerned about the environment, climate change, environmental injustice, um, but also, you know, concerned about labor and working class issues. And so um, as I spent some time, you know, meeting people, interviewing people, living up um, in some of the towns in northern Minnesota, you know, I, I wanted to talk to, um, you know, environmentalists. I wanted to talk to longtime Iron Rangers. I even wanted to talk to some industry and some government to, to understand uh, these different stakeholders. And at times it was hard to, to navigate, not taking a sigh when Maybe I wanted to be more of an activist researcher, but I decided in this setting um, that to really understand the different viewpoints and the different cultural frameworks that I kind of had to take a more neutral position. Uh, granted, there is no way of being neutral, right? But um, I didn't want to become uh, more of an engaged researcher. But the downside of that, right, is that you are this more distant, engaged observer rather than the, you know, the kind of relationships that you can form through more activist engaged research. So, you know, these are the trade-offs that you make um, and the decisions you have to make as you, as you plan for your research. But, you know, I valued that I got to, you know, go to people's houses who were, you know, third generation miners and talk to them. They were pretty skeptical at first, right? I was um, coming from the, the cities, as they say, in Minnesota, in Minnesota. So Minneapolis, I was a grad student. You know, they assumed that I was an environmentalist and was critical of them. Um, but to overcome some of those barriers to at least open a conversation, not that I wouldn't by any means agree with their views, but at least want to understand. Um, and then at the same time that I would go talk to environmentalists, them, you know, maybe my kind of cultural milieu was a little bit more aligned with them, but um, I also I, you know, have some critical eye towards towards what those groups um, and were doing. And this leads me to the next question about habitus in terms of uh, you had to learn a habitus in some ways to be able to communicate with these miners when you yourself is, uh, is not a miner. And, uh, th and then also figuring out how to communicate with the with the activist community and the government. So what is the uh, what is the importance or the relevance of of habitus in terms of being able to navigate place? Yeah, I think there's both how you navigate your own um, identities and histories as a researcher, and then also how you try and kind of understand uh, the worldviews, the daily lives, and the habits of the, of the people you're um, are working with and learning from in the field. Um, and so, you know, I sought to, you know, ha have in-depth interviews, I think is a great way to just kind of ask people questions. And, you know, I often would start interviews, especially with um, people, uh, you know, folks who live in the Iron Range for a while, just kind of asking about their history and family, because, you know, this is something that you'll find just you read the, the local newspapers, you listen to the, the radio up there. History and family is a really important theme. So just that was one way to kind of open things up and to understand, you know, why this these issues matter to people. And then, you know, if I was talking to this uh, government official, someone from a state agency, you know, I could play on being a graduate student, you know, understanding uh, kind of some of the worlds of science and policy um, was helpful. Um, 
And one thing that I think, or a couple things that I think helped me navigate the field was both uh, being a white male, right? And so I've, I was talking to retired miners, although I was from the cities and you know not quite of their same place and class location, I was still um, a white male. Um, and so I think there were some ways that that facilitated some connections, um, but maybe also you know made presumptions about how they were interacting with me. Um, and finally, I'll say one thing is I do have some family connections to the region. Um, so I had a little bit of a small taste of insider knowledge. So my dad's side of the family is from um, uh, Hibbing, which is a town on the Iron Range. Um, so I'd heard stories about, you know, the mines and I still go up to um, some land that my uncle that built a cabin on. So I've spent time up there personally and have some connections. Um, I think that helped. Uh, my last name um, is also for any old timer on the Iron Range is immediately identified as Finnish. So like they saw my name, they made jokes about it and they were like, oh, you're, you're a Finlander. Okay. All right. And like it, it, you know, at least, uh, created opening. Um, although certainly like I'm not from there nor am I, uh, you know, of the place. Yeah, that, that building of trust, I think is important. And any, uh, any ethnographer would, would see that as being, uh, well, first and foremost, important in being able to even begin the research because having somebody not trust you and not being willing to open up prevents you from even accessing any of the, well, any of the information that you're trying to, to gain from those interviews, from those chances to hang out with the participants. And uh, so did this also include some things like knowing what practices these participants uh, would carry out and knowing their language or their lingo uh, as part uh, as being a minor or some uh, something akin to that? Yeah, so some of the kind of language and terms, you know, maybe I had a little bit of knowledge of and then I learned as I went. And, you know, some of that's from uh, the mining communities, but it's also, um, you know, outdoor recreationists and other enthusiasts who spend a lot of time in northern Minnesota. So, you know, there's just kind of colloquial phrases like going up north that people talk about, you know, their vacations that would go basically anywhere north of the Twin Cities uh, to some extent was going up north. Uh, but also as people talked, you know, there's a lot of lakes in this region and, you know, people talk about lakes and they have catchphrases for them. And, you know, you'd go into the um, little local cafe and sit on a coffee and people are talking about what lakes they went fishing on or, you know, what trail they went up to go hunting. And, and that was from all sorts of groups inside. So you kind of had to learn to like, you know, make small talk about canoeing because otherwise you're going to kind of get, uh, you wouldn't be able to make, uh, make connections with people or, you know, and I, to do that, you know, I spent time just kind of sitting in coffee shops, just kind of soaking it up, but also read a lot of the local newspapers. Um, it's still a place where there's lots of little local newspapers, um, which I, and local radio and things. So, um, you know, some of that's losing and getting consolidated, but there, especially at that time, there was still a wealth of that. And that was a great way to kind of understand the, um, the local culture. Um, even everything like there, the, the time there were still like locally owned grocery stores, although some had closed, there were still some. And, you know, Zipanchich is, is one in, in, in Ely. It's, you know, run by a Eastern European immigrant family and they can still buy the sausages they make there. So just, I don't know, getting used to the, the place, the food, the, the, the social spaces right in public that people hang out um, really helped kind of get a deeper understanding of the place and, you know, why there was so much conflict and why people so, felt so emotional, emotionally attached to the place. 
Oh, the taste, right? So, like, even going into your research, what to, what clothes to wear, and to uh, not look like a rookie, or uh, uh, you know, going out into the field in a in a in a suit or something like that, as compared to wearing the clothes that they wear, so that they feel at least you're, uh, you know, somewhat vibing with them. Totally, yeah. All those things shape the, the interactions you have with people and how you're read in public and, and then in interviews. Certainly, you mentioned you mentioned coffee shop too, like what coffee to order, right, and what not to order. <laughs> right are you getting the black coffee you're getting that latte and what does that signal over yeah exactly uh and um furthermore you you talk about the intergenerational um in this book the intergenerational trend of some of the miners and how they pass it on down the family and become somewhat of a, a family heirloom is is that right for the, the, that you found in some of the mining communities yeah, so in some of my interviews, you know, people talked about being a third generation miner, and that was really kind of important to them. But also, what was important to them was that their kids and those kids could also work in mining. And, you know, I think it was about the actual practice of mining, but also what mining signified, and that it signified a good job. You could support your family, you could have time to go out and do recreation. Um, it meant a kind of vibrant, stable community, but it also, right, that was based on a, a, a sort of masculine notion about works. It was built around a heteronormative patriarchal order, right? I mean, these mining jobs were traditionally for men. Um, and so, you know, we can't overlook um, the ways that masculinity and patriarchy were, were also shaping this vision. Um and what people you know wanted and, and hoped for, um, but I also saw that there was some splitting between generations, and I met some younger people who maybe had grown up on the Iron Range area or had some family up there who were a little more skeptical of mining. Um, you know, I talked to one guy who was working at um, one of the local uh, like liquor uh, beer stores. And he was like, yeah, people think it's going to be this savior, but like, it's not going to be like, maybe it'll be okay. But like, people are talking about this, like it's, you know, going to come transform our lives and it's just not. And some other, and then others were who were down and skeptical, who had got more into outdoor recreation stuff and maybe now worked in the tourism industry who were like, yeah, like my parent and my grandparents' generation for them, mining was this great thing, but I, I just don't see it. I also don't want that lifestyle anymore. So, um, there were some changes and there's a broader pattern of people, you know, leaving the iron range, which people who still live there were really concerned about. Um, but part of that is a mix of there not being the opportunities anymore in terms of jobs and education. And for some people, they didn't, they didn't want to live in a rural place and they didn't want to wake up and go to a mine or, or, or do construction. So, you know, I think, um, do have to recognize how there also are some shifts going on. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, it's a contested space, and there's some significance uh, that you um, are talking about in terms of the class and the age and the population, uh, as well as the education that the population has and how they make meaning of the iron range, right? Uh, and and maybe you saw this not only in the interviews, but also in the paper and in the uh, radio stations and how they talked about the iron range, because uh, uh, my experience with radio has been that really what they produce, the content they produce has to speak volumes haha, to the, to the audience they're speaking to. Yeah. And so I, this also, you know, through um, local media, through other kind of memory sites. So whether it's, you know, roadside stands or uh, local museums, right. These are some of the kind of key institutions and places that those cultural narratives, those collective memories get, reproduced and recreated and also contested too. So um, in my research and in the book, I spent a little bit of time talking about these sites. So talking about the differences in local newspapers, some of the, uh, but also some of the dominant narratives that came through in the local newspapers, but then also these, these sites of memory. So whether it was, you know, uh, a closed mine that's now a museum or you know, a memorial with a placard about miners and some old mining equipment um, or the local regional museum, right? Because these are important, you know, places where that history gets told and, right, all those decisions about how those stories gets told have a lot of consequences um, socially and politically, um, but also kind of recreate and reproduce some of those dominant narratives about what the place was, what it is now, and what it can or should be. So what's the value of this collective memory? Is it important for a, for a community to have a collective memory bound to it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, really central to notions of place and identity and belonging. Um, and I think in the book, I, I show how and why collective memories are both emotionally salient and then useful politically and socially. Um, and in a way that, you know, doesn't fit into one political ideology or, or identity. So also talk about nostalgia, right? Which is this kind of romantic longing um, for the past. Um, and that how nostalgia gets mobilized by groups on the left and the right. Um, it gets mobilized for like um, pro-industry forces and right-wing populists, but it also gets mobilized by conservation groups, um, uh, other environmentalists, and also has still also been used by on the left. Um, so kind of look at the myriad of ways that memory and its emotional meanings um, get used by social movements and get used by politicians, um, but also to challenge this idea that nostalgia is solely a kind of right, right, uh, right wing kind of reactionary stance, but then also be, be mobilized for, for um, progressive causes as, as well. And when you say emotional, I assume you mean sensate, right? It creates a uh, it creates a response, uh, a bodily response to the image that is being produced through this uh, this memory that becomes 
you know, collective, uh, one that people identify with as a result of maybe either wanting to become, be from that area, a desire to be that, or truly from being from that area, having some sort of a common identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these, um, at least a sense of shared experience creates a sense of shared identity and experience. And memory is powerful, or these forms of collective memory are powerful, right? Because people can connect to things that they maybe have not experienced, right? So that heyday of mining is this kind of... Uh, uh, thing that people can connect to, even though they didn't necessarily live through it, or it wasn't their own personal memory or experience. Uh, but also, right, the uh, conservation groups um, and people working to prevent or stop mining, um, or this expansion of new mining, drew a lot on memories of uh, a canoe trip into the boundary waters, um, or you know, the kind of the sights and sounds and feelings of being by a campfire, looking up at the night sky with all the stars um, or these stories about how in the boundary waters this protected wilderness area how you could still dip your cup into the water and drink it right out right because it was so clean and so fresh and right people could all connect to that and they could hear it they could feel it they could smell it and i think that was a powerful way to get people mobilize it you get people out to go to you know kind of boring hearings on a on a tuesday evening but it's those those emotional connections that i think helped um, mobilize people. And the fact that it's nostalgic suggests that it's a time that will never be again. It's a time that is lost. And and that's what we're longing for, something that is dead that will never uh, return. So whether it's true or not, it becomes true through collective memory. Exactly. Um, which is, I think, also really important in the mining context. So I, I use this term that others have talked about called smokestack nostalgia. Right. It's this idea, you know, when the factories are booming and whatever, it was a great time. But what that neglects and leaves out is the pollution, the occupational health and safety risks, the exploitive and hard working conditions. Right. Those sometimes get pushed aside. Right. In what gets, um, you know, centralized uh, in the narrative of that kind of nostalgic narrative. As a way to create advocacy um, or, uh, well, to motivate action whether it be working and mining and supporting that or uh, going against it and advocacy to try to prevent any future development of mines. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'm interested in heritage, uh, in heritage tourism myself, and it's interesting how my home community of Pella, Iowa, how they really focus on their Dutch community and having Dutch days while tulip time and just how they promote that as well as some uh, past people who have either uh, lived or came through uh, the community and whether they did or not isn't so much as important as the experience that may or may not have been. So thank you again, uh, Dr. Kula. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, we're running a bit short on time, but I think this might be a a good time to talk about uh, what you're working on now, what your next project is. Yeah, so I've uh, I've uh, made a shift a bit and gone to work in um, kind of applied and, and ad- advocacy research. But uh, you know, my my work for mining the heartland was about mining, right? Mining uh, minerals um, and rocks out of the ground. But I've actually started to look into a new type of uh, digital mining, um, cryptocurrency mining, which is not mining at all. It's just a bunch of big computers uh, uh, trying to sell. All algorithms, but it's uh, 
but it's a new way, a new extractive form of, of creating value out of uh, technologies. But it also has a material uh, consequence. So um, the reason that I, I've been looking into it um, and then part of campaign looking at it is that um, this digital mining for Bitcoin uh, uses a lot of energy and has a lot of carbon emissions and also creates e-waste. So um, I've kind of taken some of these themes um, and looking at it in a new kind of different area, but um, also a way to think about the connections between uh, the kind of so-called, you know, digital uh, economy, right? Things that we often don't think of as having a material physical consequence and tracing, you know, what are those material consequences? But also like um, with the mining in the iron range, a lot of the, there's all this sort of a greenwashing argument that this was going to, you know, provide the copper and nickel that we need for your electric cars, for your solar panels. Um, and so, you know, it was in kind of the other side of saying, hey, this stuff that you think is green, green and, green and clean um, still requires things from the earth. So um, I'm still kind of interested in these kind of contradictions and tensions between um, our economy and its material requirements, um, even as we you know shift towards a greener economy and into a digital, what seems kind of post-industrial, but right, still has um, real needs to produce things and make things that require manipulating non-human nature and there's still a digital community that is uh readily accessible or maybe not so much uh you can tell me your experience but uh to be able to talk to people about how how and what they do as uh as people interested in mining cryptocurrency and uh so, so yeah is that what you're currently doing is uh going into into the field and, and talking with the these uh participants these people who do who work in cryptocurrency um it's not the focus of my work now which is really driven by um by a campaign to change the way uh bitcoin works so it doesn't require the same amount of energy but i think you know as always having my kind of sociologist hat on i'm really i am you know quite interested in the in the way these kind of groups operate the kind of social and cultural meaning and identities linked to Bitcoin in particular. Um, uh, there's some resistance to changing it, um, which I think in part is um, some of the cultural meaning and kind of collective identity that is assigned and linked to, uh, in this case, Bitcoin. That's interesting. The alt economy is, is something that has long been around, right? It's not, it's not brand new, but how it presents itself is different. Certainly. Well, thank you again for, for joining me on New Books in Sociology. I, I look forward to talking to you um, in the future about your current project. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. So, again, this has been an episode of New Books in Sociology, and I'm Michael Johnston. New Books in Sociology is a channel on the larger New Books Network. Have a great day. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.